All right, I'm going to read for you Palm Sunday story. It's really simple, not complicated, but it contains a lot of stuff for you and I. So let me read it, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. You put it up here on the screen behind me, or you can look it up in one of our new pew Bibles there. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Here's the story we're rallying around today. It says, the next day, the uh, next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colts. And that's it. That's Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this day that we can celebrate the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, the very, very uh, last week that he would spend before his death and then resurrection. Lord, this is a special week for followers of Christ, as you know, uh, a week that we set aside to focus in a uh, very spiritual way on some of the meaningful aspects of Jesus' life. And so, God, I pray as we kick it off now by taking a look at the meaning of of Palm Sunday and the implications for our lives that God we might leave here in a half an hour maybe with some more knowledge some more truth most importantly uh, equipped more to live for you so God thank you for your word for your truth for the transformed lives that we've seen here today as we say quite often around here God only you only you could do that and we'd love to see your movement in our lives and in other people's lives so do that now we pray in Jesus name amen so when you think about it, Palm Sunday is an incredibly simple story. It is. If you're not a very religious person, you would simply say that Palm Sunday is about a man riding into town. That's about it on face value. It's just that the man is Jesus and the town is Jerusalem. But other than that, it's really a story out of the Bible about a guy riding into town. And so try to picture it, folks. Jerusalem is jam-packed with people that week. It was the annual Passover celebration. And so Jerusalem was going to be busy with the Jews preparing for Passover. And Jesus' ministry had grown in popularity in the three years that he had been ministering as he had been doing miracles and teaching. In fact, most people saw him as a miracle worker, maybe a great teacher, some even the long-awaited Messiah. And so it was logical that when he rode into town because he had celebrity status, that people would line up and hail him as the coming king. I mean, in many ways, from their vantage point, because a lot of them did not understand who Jesus was and what he was about, they were welcoming a celebrity that day into Jerusalem. As many of you know, I come from a very small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, called Chagrin Falls. You'll see on the picture behind me there that Chagrin is just this quaint, beautiful little town of about 5,000 people, about 30 miles outside of Cleveland. And if you were to go in to see Chagrin today, you'd see this picturesque Norman Rockwell, New England-type town, complete with a waterfall right in the center of town along Main Street. And probably one of the most popular places in all of Chagrin sits right above the waterfall, a place by the name of the pop, known as the Popcorn Shop. The Popcorn Shop has been there for about a hundred years. It's just this beautiful little shop that sells popcorn balls and candy and great ice cream cones. Everybody in Chagrin knows about the Popcorn Shop. Many people go there on a sunny Sunday evening to grab an ice cream cone before the work week starts. And about six years ago, during the 2004 presidential election, unannounced, on a Saturday morning, a governmental helicopter landed on Main Street, 
multiple Secret Service men and women fanned out, and I kid you not, George W. Bush emerged, went into the popcorn shop, and bought an ice cream cone. In my little hometown, I'm not kidding. The moment that it happened, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, who still live in town there, called Kim and I up and said, you got to come down to town. The president's in town. And I said, you're lying. She said, no, it's true. And when I got there, sure enough, there were crowds everywhere, and George W. Bush had come to Chagrin Falls. And as you can imagine, it was all that people talked about for the next week. George Bush stopped into our little town to grab an ice cream cone on the campaign trail. And it was really exciting for a while. A man rode into town that day in Chagrin, an important man. And we all talked about it for a week. But as you can also imagine, after about a week, pretty much things died down and it was business as usual. I mean, after he left, we still had zoning arguments about so-and-so building too big of a garage. Marriages were still in trouble after Bush left. Kids continued to dabble in drugs. Depression and anxiety were still gripping some people. Uh, souls, no great sense of purpose and direction for many souls and many people's lives that, that is common in this fallen world. In other words, it was a nice visit that the president paid to our town. It was a, nice that a man rode into town, but the reality is, is that after a little while, things went back to normal. And the point is, is that lots of important people come into towns all over the world on a regular basis. And though it's exciting for a little while, let's face it, it doesn't usually change the composition of a human heart. It doesn't usually change the trajectory of a human life just because somebody rides into town. It dies down rather quickly. And at best, we get nice memories, a chance to meet somebody important. And then it's back to our regular everyday lives. And so when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that a man rides into town, even though it's Jesus and even though it's Jerusalem during a busy season, if you didn't know any more than this, I mean, just based on human experience, you would be very tempted to talk, chalk it up to just another important guy coming into town like President Bush that though creates a stir for a few days, isn't really going to change your life. A man rides into town, and you and I got to ask, because a lot of important people come into town, in the long run, what's the big deal? And yet, as most of us know here today, and we need to help others understand this, it is a big deal, amen? It is a big deal. I mean, Jesus coming into town isn't like anybody else. I mean, history as well as the experience of millions of people down through the ages, tell us that this simple storyline of a guy riding into town is not so simple or mundane when it comes to Jesus and his road trip into Jerusalem. Four things I want to suggest to you in our time remaining this morning. Four things that I believe Jesus riding into Jerusalem has the power and capacity to do in your life and mine. Four things that no other person coming to town could ever match when it comes to what can happen in your life here in the 21st century. And so here's the first implication of Palm Sunday, and that is that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, your lost family members and friends now have hope. Did you know that? Because a man rode into town, your lost family friends and, and your all family and friends now have hope. So think about it with me, folks. Why did Jesus come into town in the first place? I mean, why did he make this road trip into Jerusalem? 
Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, reflecting on this years later, would give us the answer in black and white. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? Now listen, to die. To die. That's why he came. He predicted it throughout his three years of public ministry. He told his disciples repeatedly that this was what was going to happen. But please realize, this isn't just some usual death or even some usual capital punishment death. No, look closely again at what Peter says. He said, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and me to God. In other words, it's what theologians would go on to call the atonement. Jesus dying a sinner's death as our substitute. The death that you and I and our lost family members and friends should have paid because of our sins before God, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus paid. And in doing this, he secured the needed forgiveness that each of us require to even have a relationship with Almighty God. And so as a result of Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, predicated on him riding into Jerusalem that very first Palm Sunday, for those who believe and trust in him, their prayers are now heard. They've entered into a real and vital relationship with God the Father, and heaven is now a guaranteed reality, not just a hopeful wish. I mean, when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem that day, everything changed. And one of the biggest things that changed is that now lost people, those who have not yet found God, have hope. And so don't miss the implication here, folks. It means that those whom you deeply care about, and yet those who have not come to surrender to Christ and His call on their lives, even the real tough nuts to crack, and you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that you can hardly ever visualize, even bending the knee to Christ, these ones have hope. Why? Because Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die for the sins of humankind, to bring us to God. And though it takes a response of saving trust and faith in order to appropriate Christ's forgiveness and the eternal life it brings, make no mistake, until a person's dying breath, there's hope. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and when he did, he died. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. As a result of this, Peter would say it like this. He would say, he is now patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The first thing that Palm Sunday teaches us is that because a man came into town, your lost family members and friends now have hope, even if they don't know it yet. <laughs> they have hope hope. Now, there's more, lots more. So here's the second implication of Palm Sunday, and that is that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, God now will never leave or forsake you. Did you know that? He said he never is going to leave you or forsake you. And so answer this for me, folks. After Jesus went to the cross and died and then rose again, which we'll celebrate next weekend, do you remember what happened after that, about 40 days later? He ascended into heaven, right? He left us physically and promised to come again. And yet look at what some of his very last words were to you and me before he left. Look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. This is very interesting. He says, and behold, I am with you 
always, so he's leaving, but he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And then as the church becomes established, lest there be any doubt, look at how the author of Hebrews would go on to say it. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and I get this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So do you see? Though Jesus left this earth physically to return to the Father, he promised that he would never leave us in the most important area of life, that of the soul and spirit. And so though you and I cannot see him physically, he is still always with us every step of the way, encouraging, strengthening, guiding, speaking his word to us through others and in that still small voice of his. I mean, this is such a powerful truth. You don't want to miss this, folks. We talk a lot about the omnipresence of God, the fact that if God is God, he can be everywhere present all the time. But theologians also point out that in the scriptures there is a very special presence of God. That for those who have come to follow him and accept him through his son Christ, he now has a special presence with you that no matter what you go through, he is with you. And it changes everything about our experiences. In fact, Paul the Apostle got so fired up about this point here, he, he, he got in touch with this on such a deep level. Look what he would write at one point. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. This blows you away. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say, whoa, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's presence. That's how powerful it is. And it all goes back to a man riding into town. You know, as I was reflecting on this this point of God's special presence with us, going all the way back to, to Palm Sunday, I started just doing an analysis of just this past week here in our church. And as I uh, interacted with many of you through individual appointments and emails and phone calls and just hanging out with groups here in the church, like happens most week, I was confronted with how tough it is to, to live in a fallen world. In other words, there's just lots of things that hit you and I about living in a fallen world that make life very, very difficult, if not times extremely difficult. And so I made a list of just some of the things this week that I confronted with you of things going on in our church just by living in a fallen world. You ready for this list? Uh, I confronted serious health problems even with little children this week in our church. It would have just broke your heart. Uh, we, we prayed with a couple as a group of elders on Thursday night whose daughter was born without a corpus callosum, what separates the right and left half of the brain. And she struggles with seizures ten times a day. I mean, just incredible struggles in her life. And it just created a lot of stress on the family, as you can imagine. We're praying for another little boy in our church right now who is six years old and got this genetic disease that, that is just threatening his life right now. He's actually in a, in a doctor-induced coma. I mean, it's just been such a struggle for the family. This week, I confronted or rubbed shoulders with some of you that are struggling with significant and debilitating mental problems. I mean, anxiety, depression, profound loneliness, discouragement have just gripped some people by the throat. Uh, Some folks are struggling with aging problems in our church. I know that's a stretch here at Scottsdale Bible, but it's happening. Some aging problems physically and with the mind. We're getting older, and that creates its own problems. Some of us even terminal illness. 
This week, I, I, I wrestled with some folks with chronic marital breakdown issues. And I mean so chronic that, that even the wisdom that myself and the elders could impart, it, it just seems hopeless in most people's eyes. Like, could this really be repaired? I, I mean, I think it can, but boy, it's hard to see clear during those times. Some of you have been there. Some people in this church are struggling this week with awful family of origin issues. Everything from bad parenting to abuse to a history of divorce. And it's just wreaking havoc in the present. Vocational crises in our recession still. People who are out of work or in miserable dead-end jobs. And then on top of this, even spiritual doubt and atheism. Have you ever gotten there? where you just feel so beaten down. I mean, you're struggling so much in a fallen world that you wonder, is God even there? I mean, the Bible says he is, but is he even there? And you start to doubt even his existence. And folks, I got to the end of this week, and I was preparing for today, and I got to Romans 8, and you know what I thought to myself? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Trust me, I am neck deep. Most we, you can clap at that, I guess. I am neck deep, week in and week out. And just the mess of our lives, some of it self-created, some of it world-created. But the reality is, is that you got to believe this. Paul says nothing can separate you. So let's reword Romans 8 right now in light of this past week. Not seeing a loved one struggling with debilitating health not synapses that don't make the connection and wreak habit with your mind, not a failing body due to age or illness, not your marriage that is so stuck that every winch you have tried has failed to budget, not your terrible past that you can't seem to get beyond, not your totally unfulfilling job or even lack thereof one, not even doubt at times wondering if God is even the picture. Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of God that now inhabits your soul through the Holy Spirit. Why? Because a guy rode into town. And when he rode into town, he said, I will never leave you or forsake it. So grab it by faith today. Now, Paul the Apostle at one point said, you only got three things left at the end of the day. Faith, hope, and love. Love for other people, hope of eternal life, and faith in God who loves you and has promised never to leave you or forsake you. It's what Palm Sunday is all about. So you got lost loved ones who now have hope you got the fact that God will never leave you or forsake you. And as if all of this were not enough, notice with me a third implication that Palm Sunday serves up in our lives. And that is that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, your life now has purpose and direction. Your life from this moment on has purpose and direction. So track where we've come from and where we're going this morning. Jesus rides into town. He died and gave all that are lost hope. He rose again and ascended into heaven, promised to never leave us, forsake us. And what goes on to happen in the rest of the New Testament? Have you read it yet? They discover the awesome and life-giving purpose and direction that having God at the center of our lives brings. In other words, their spiritual lives went from black and white to technicolor, They went from a mundane kind of daily existence to now seeing God move and act daily in whatever setting they were in to the point that they had purpose, joy, and direction in their lives. Let me just give you a couple of examples of things that the New Testament church experienced in in areas that we deal with every day. I I mentioned marriage earlier. Look at what they discovered about marriage and its purpose in Christ as it links Jesus' love for the church with a husband-wife role and how to love the kids as well. Look at Ephesians 5, the very last verse, and then into chapter 6. 
It says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that this may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That like covers it all, doesn't it? I mean, it's basically saying, guys, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Pretty tall order for men, but it works. That as you get in touch with how much Jesus loves you and how much grace and compassion and care and even candor he shows you in your life, love your wife the same way. Wives, love your husbands, respect them as Jesus does that for you. Children, obey your parents just like you obey Jesus. And by the way, parents, don't egg on your children. Don't frustrate them to no end in some overly strict, legalistic way. But love them. Don't exasperate them. And you notice that every one of these four commands all go back to Jesus. Isn't that cool? Basically saying that the way that Jesus loves us and patterned for us, we're not to love others, even in our family. So the gospel, this guy riding into town on Palm Sunday, has the power to revolutionize the way we see and act in family. A second example, consider your work. And check out Colossians 3, verse 23, what it says about our jobs and our work. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's kind of an interesting theology, isn't it? I mean, most of us go to work, and we got two prime motivations. We do it because we like what we do, hopefully, and we also do it because we get paid, right? We get paid. Let's just be honest. And we know that that's a high value to many of us. And yet then the Bible comes along and says, whatever you do, so whether you're an architect, a stockbroker, a school teacher, a, a, a sanitation engineer, I think that's the politically correct term, whatever it is that you do, do it now for God, not for men. For God, not just for a paycheck or even intrinsic enjoyment. And so I got an architect friend of mine in Chicago who loves to design buildings. In fact, he said to me once after watching Chariots of Fire years ago, he said, you know, when Eric Little said that I feel God's pleasure when I run, he said, I feel God's pleasure when I design buildings. I thought, that's so strange. He, he said, but I just love that. He, he, he said, I just feel like God is right there with me. I got a stockbroker friend in Detroit who works for God. He says, I just feel like I go through all day in the ups and downs of my business. <laughs> like right now, it's a lot of downs. And he says, I just go through every day feeling like it's me and Jesus in a bubble protected from everything around me. But what's going on there, folks? These are simply people who understand Colossians 3.23 here. And the point is, whether it's marriage or our work, everything is now affected because a guy rode into town. Our finances, our hobbies, our vacations, our retirement goals, everything. In fact, look at how Paul the Apostle, again, would go on to say it once he got in touch with this. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, so whether you eat or drink, or again, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything now has purpose and direction. Your life is hidden with God and in Christ. Every day is now a journey with him. You know, maybe this will help. Back in 1867, there was a Swedish alchemist by the name of Alfred Nobel. And at the time, Nobel was living a normal, everyday life, like many of you, simply doing what he loved, which in this case was just mixing chemicals. And one day he invented something that had incredible explosive power, and he called it dynamite. And not thinking very clearly, he posited that this invention was so powerful that it would make war way too horrible 
for anyone to ever want to engage in again. And so he started selling it to anyone and everyone who would buy it. And over the next couple of decades, he made a fortune, as you can imagine, on selling dynamite. And yet he was also horrified at the same time with the suffering and misery that it caused in numerous wars and conflicts. Thousands upon thousands of people lost their lives due to this invention. And then one day, toward the end of the 19th century, he awoke one morning and was reading a newspaper, and he read his own obituary. Would that freak you out or what? I mean, you're still alive, you open the newspaper, and you read your own obituary. And it said this, look up here on the screen, it said, Alfred Noble, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Noble knew right away what had happened. It was his older brother who had died that week, but the newspaper, restore, newspaper reporter had confused the story and thought that Alfred had died instead and so wrote the epitaph. And yet reading his own obituary that morning had a profound effect on Alfred Noble. He was struck, struck with the fact that he didn't want to be known for something like developing a means to kill people efficiently and for making lots of money in the process. That was never his original intent. And so what he did was, shortly before he died, as a result of this experience, he set up a significant award fund to be used for scientists and writers who foster peace. And as you all know, it became known as the Nobel Peace Prize. And still today, it is one of the most prestigious and sought-after awards in the scientific and literary community, having spurred on hundreds of thousands of young scientists and writers for the last century to strive for peace and good, not war and harm. And before he died, Nobel said this. This is very instructive for you and me today. Look up here on the screen. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. Now let that sink in a moment. Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. And I would submit to you that that's the point of Palm Sunday. That's why Jesus rode into Jerusalem, so that you and I, now having a new lease on life, complete with the forgiveness of sins and his presence now an abiding reality, might find so much purpose and direction as God now leads us that we might literally write a new epitaph for our lives. And so here's the $10 question. How would you change your epitaph were it to come out today? Isn't that like the $10 question for you and I today? That if for some reason that was to happen to us and we wake up tomorrow morning, Monday, and we grab the Arizona Republic and we open it up and read an epitaph and it's you by mistake, what would you want it to say? Would it say something eternally purposeful about your focus in this world? Or would it simply say something like this? This is what we usually read. Joe Businessman died this week, leaving behind three grown kids. He liked horseback riding, traveling, and watching professional sports. In lieu of flowers, please send a gift to Hospice of Scottsdale. I mean, that's what we usually read. And I'm not dissing those. I mean, that's just fine. Many of them are, well, they're kind of interesting. But the reality is, is that if an epitaph were to be written for you today, wouldn't you want it to say something a bit more purposeful about your faith, about your direction, about your relationality in life? Folks, don't miss this. Jesus came to give us life. Life eternal, yes, but powerful life here and now. A man rides into town, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and the point is our lives are never to be the same. And then there's one more thing that this Palm Sunday experience produces. And this one brings it all together. And we don't want to overlook this. And with this, we're done. 
And that is that because Jesus rode into Jerusalem, you now don't have to journey alone. You don't have to journey alone. Now, this doesn't mean what some of you think it means. Because some of you think it means, well, Jamie, I know God is already with us, right? No, we already established that one under point two. What I mean by this is that because a man rode into town, now get this, he then went on to set up a new community, a community of followers who are marked by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love that makes it so that you and I never have to journey alone, and he called it the church. And though the church is so flawed at times because it's made up of fallen human beings, I know the church has hurt some of us deeply over the years. The reality is, is that God has never given up on his church. That God made the church in all of its different shapes and sizes, just like these crosses come in all different shapes and sizes. He did that so that he could then implant his Holy Spirit and his risen son Jesus that we might become a community of love and faith. In fact, this really was Jesus' dream, folks. Many of you have heard of the Last Supper, last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. Look at one of the things he taught them during this time. Look at John 13, 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you memorize 60 Bible verses. It doesn't say that. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you fight the culture wars, it doesn't say that. Memorizing the Bible and fighting the culture wars are good things to do. But they're going to know that we are his disciples how? When we love one another. Fascinating case study. In the first century church, they had no money. They had no buildings. They had no programs. They had no paid staff. All the things that you and I do to make church work today, they had none of it. All they had was faith, hope, and love and they rocked the Middle East I mean they rocked it they went from 130 believers after Jesus ascended into heaven to 3,000 in one day can you imagine that kind of church growth if a church like this grows maybe 200 people next year we go gosh we're on the upswing isn't that good well hardly Pentecost I mean, hardly a day where the Holy Spirit entered in in such a way that, man, they saw lives transformed. And what was that about? It was about love. Look at Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. It says, And those who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and belongings, distributing to all anybody who had need. They took John 13 seriously. And they said, We're going to love people like nobody's ever loved them. And in that embryonic environment, people came to Christ. Why? Because nobody walked alone. And that's the point. That if you and I are the church, and if we're honoring Palm Sunday, our lost loved ones now have hope. And the reality is, is that we got the presence of God with us all the time. We even now have purpose and direction in our lives. But we do all this together. Nobody's an island. We enlist in little platoons all throughout culture, gather in large settings like this to worship. That's the church. And it's powerful. So here's my hope and prayer as we uh, wrap this thing up. Who would have ever thought that such a simple storyline, a man riding into town, could carry such life-changing, life-altering things? Who would have ever thought that a man riding into town would give every lost person in this world hope? Who would have ever thought that a man riding into town would bring the, uh, the special presence of God in a way never before seen? Who would have thought that a man riding into town would bring profound purpose and direction to our family, our work, everything else. And who would have thought that a man riding into town would make it so that you and I never have to journey alone? Let's never see this story the same again. Let's go out and live these things.
that Jesus came to bring us. And let's pray before we do. Father, thank you for, once again, a very simple account, a very simple historical story that has nothing but the power to bring profound transformation and change to our lives. Father, I thank you that you are in the business of giving hope and love and faith, courage, perseverance, strength, transformation to our lives as we look to and follow you. And so, Lord, as we enter into what hopefully will be a very profound week for us as we celebrate Friday night, Good Friday, as we celebrate next Sunday Easter, as hopefully we meditate this whole week on things like uh, the cross and Jesus' final week and his teachings, I pray, God, that you would do nothing but draw us closer to you. And more than anything, Lord, to remind us that everything changed when you rode into town. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.